welcome. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to study your word. Thank you for the blessing of Bible study. Just as the world gets increasingly wicked, thankful for the freedom and the privilege it is to have a copy of your word and the opportunity to study it and to discuss it with other believers and how rich that is. And we thank you for that and ask your blessing today. May I speak nothing that dishonors you, nothing that is unhelpful. May my words be wise and helpful and honoring to you. Just hide me behind the cross and let your message be received in all of our hearts today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So first of all, I'd like to say it's great to be back with you guys. I missed you, and I'm excited to be with you. But I know you guys were in very capable hands with Sarah and Becky, and I got to hear them teach in the evening, so know how well they did, and I'm very thankful that we have a church with many women who are able to teach in a ministry where they can use their gifts. So I always like to start with a bit of review. Where have we been? Where are we going in the book of James? And over the past few weeks, we have seen... Heavenly wisdom, because remember that's our overarching theme for the whole year. We keep talking about heavenly wisdom concerning, and then fill in the blank, heavenly wisdom concerning, and the past few weeks we saw, heavenly wisdom concerning favoritism, and heavenly wisdom concerning living in faith. That was in chapter two, that the church is not to be marked by hypocrisy and favoritism, because that is against the character of God, and we are to have faith that works itself out in deeds. Also, we saw heavenly wisdom concerning the tongue. Right? Heavenly wisdom concerning the tongue and how we are to speak. And James just keeps continually putting two paths before us. So I have to be honest, as I was going through this lesson, I was just struggling with like, illustrations. Because as you think about um, the bad kind of wisdom, I have plenty of illustrations, but I don't really want to throw anybody under the bus by sharing them right? <laughs> and, and share their dirty laundry. And then um, there actually aren't as many, sadly, examples of wise people in the world that we're looking for, but I was listening to my old college pastor as he taught on this, and he reminded me about the Continental Divide. And growing up, I lived about an hour from the Continental Divide, so we would travel all the time for swim meets and to see family, and we were always crossing it. Remember, Dad being, it's the Continental Divide, and by the time you're 16 and you've crossed this, you know, your whole life, multiple times a year, you're like, got it, Dad. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah, yep. So... If you don't know what the Continental Divide is, it is a point in the country, and it's a line that goes down kind of the western part of the country where if you're a raindrop and you land on one side, you go into the Pacific Ocean. If you land on the other, you go into the Atlantic. And all water gets divided in this country at that point, and it ends in one or the other ocean. And I just was thinking about that visual that you could be a cloud, right? And you can come down and just a little line separates, and you end up oceans apart right? It separates where you go. That's the continental divide. And that is what James is continually setting before us today. He is setting before us a divide, a divide between worldly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. There are two ways, two paths, worldly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. Worldly wisdom is completely self-exalting. Worldly wisdom is all about self, self self-promotion. It is marked by selfishness, whereas the wisdom from God is a wisdom that is about your relationship with him and others. So today, and I told you this back when we were in chapter one, today we reach the peak point of the book of James. If you were reading it in Greek, everything, if you were reading in Greek, the translation, the style, everything would shift now to emphasize this portion, James 3, 13 through 18. And I just 
because I'm teaching and I'm always thinking about how I, do to, uh, how I make things different to draw my kids' attention to it, right? When I'm teaching, I do everything in one color and the thing they really have to notice, I change the color. But we do it all the time with underlining or bolding or italicizing something, right? And that's what James is doing. He's saying, this is the point. This is what everything crescendos up to and everything is connected to its wisdom. So please turn with me to the book of James, and we're in James chapter 3, verse 13, and we're going to dive into the text here. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray as we begin. Oh, we did, I did pray. Sorry. I prayed when we opened. Um, I wrote that in my notes. That's what happens. I, we'll pray again, but that's what happens when I follow my notes too closely. I'm like, oh, time to pray. But we did that. But we'll pray again. Father, please give us wisdom as we go through this text. Please be honored in all that we do, and let it be something that penetrates our lives. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. So today, um, our topic, or my title, my overarching title is Heavenly Wisdom Concerning Wisdom. Heavenly Wisdom Concerning Wisdom. And my Old Testament professor had taught on this, and he titled this, Wise and Otherwise. I thought that was clever. Wise and Otherwise. So that's kind of my sub-point. We're looking at the two ways, wise and otherwise. So our first, and then I have three points under that. So heavenly wisdom concerning wisdom, and we have three points. And the first one is that true wisdom shows itself in obedience. True wisdom shows itself in obedience. James opens with a question, and it's kind of a general statement that he's going to make, and then he's going to define it. So he's going to say, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his deeds. Then he's going to describe the deeds of worldly wisdom and the deeds of, the, of true wisdom. Right? And so who is wise and understanding? Show it by your deeds. Show it through your obedience. And again, we see how these threads of James just keep weaving together. If you have true faith, it's going to show itself in works. And if you have true wisdom, it's going to show itself in obedience. See how complementary those are. But before we go on, I just want us to stop and remember again, what is wisdom? It's a term we're talking about, we're using all the time, James is using. Well, I wanted to take a minute and just think about the world's wisdom. What is the wisdom? And even as I say that, does the world even really talk about wisdom anymore? We talk about knowledge. We talk about experts. You can go to college and take a class in probably, I mean, I think they even have like tennis classes to get a PE credit, right? Like you can take any, you can't take a class on wisdom, right? So the world has kind of redefined wisdom as knowledge or as expertise or it just completely ignores it, right? But as you think about where the world thinks that they are so enlightened. I was thinking of a few examples. One of them, I'm going to read this to you from my, sorry, it's on my phone. I didn't get it printed out. But Seattle Public School Systems thinks that they are very wise, and they are rolling out a new math program because, if you didn't know it, math is racist. Listen as I read. In case you didn't already know this, math is racist. That appears to be the contention of Seattle Public Schools, which has offered a course for K through 12 students titled Math Ethnic Studies. The framework for the class lists multiple themes, what students will learn, and how those themes are being important questions are going to be asked. Questions like, 
me read those to you. What is my mathematical identity? How does it feel to be a mathematician? What are other mathematicians learning in my learning community? Is there an authority for math knowledge? What stories are important to your cultural connection to mathematics? What does it mean to do math? How important is it to be right? What is right? Says who? Those are questions that I'm sure can't be answered by this course that the public school system is rolling out. And if you say it's crazy, you're a racist, right? So <laughs> that's the wisdom, just one example of the wisdom that the world is offering, right? They're going to redefine truth and relabel those who speak, stand up for truth, right? So in contrast to that, what is wisdom? Remember when we first started this Bible study, very first lecture, very first day, we looked at the book of Job because it was the first book written, right? Job's the first book written in the Bible. And Job 28, 12 says, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And James echoes that text here and takes the same view as Job that real wisdom must be revealed from above. Real wisdom must be revealed from above and it requires reverence for God and a humble spirit to receive it. It's a quote from Dr. Varner. And we talked about that when we were in Job. In our own strength and in our own power, we cannot discover wisdom. God reveals wisdom to us through his son and through his word. And it is those who are humble and teachable. You can acquire knowledge, but you cannot acquire wisdom apart from Christ and his word. Fear of the Lord, that is the beginning of wisdom. Again, my college pastor Rick Collins said, true wisdom is how you act more than what you know. Because if what you know doesn't change how you act, it's useless. I'm going to read that again. True wisdom is how you act more than what you know. Because if what you know doesn't change how you act, it's useless. Just as faith without works is useless. So I was thinking about this. Um, we all, I think, probably know at this point, I've heard it many times, it's culturally out there, that if you text and drive, it's the same as driving drunk. Your level of distraction, your level of ability to process, there is no difference between you and a drunk driver. And we would all affirm that, I'm saying, you know, hopefully. But how many times do you think, well, there's no one on this little stretch of road, I'm just going to say this one thing. Or I'm going slow, nothing's happening, I just have a, just a quick second. I rarely do it, just this one time I had to get back to something. We've all probably justified at some point, some way, that we responded to a text. Um, another example, could, so you can know that it's as bad as, as dangerous as just driving, but if you do it, it's kind of useless knowledge, right? It's not really impacting you. Um, my, my dad um, went to the doctor and he had um, high cholesterol, which actually is kind of genetic in my family. My dad's really healthy, but he had high cholesterol. And the doctor said, do these things. And my dad came back in for his next test and he had done all these things. And the doctor said, well, I cannot believe how low your cholesterol is. What did you do? He's like, well, I just did what you told me. And the doctor really didn't have anything to say because nobody does. He was not prepared for somebody to take his instructions and it shocked him. So when the doctor tells you what you're supposed to do and it's so common in their world that you're not gonna do it, what does that tell us about what you know versus what, does that, do you see that? Knowledge is useless without application, right? And wisdom, if it, so if you have knowledge, true wisdom is more how you act than what you know, all right? True wisdom is more how you act than what you know because it has to change us. 
The other thing about wisdom that we need to know is wisdom is relational. Every single description about wisdom here is relational. It's about our relationship with one another and our relationship with God. All these terms are all either the antithesis of the one another's or ways we are supposed to treat one another, right? Having them promotes relationship when you have the true wisdom. Not having them destroys relationship, right? It is, it's not anything that happens in a vacuum. It impacts every single relationship we have. So wisdom is very relational with each other and with God. So with that, let's look at the text. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works. Good conduct, that means the whole man, the entire way of life. So if you're the greatest worker at school and you're a jerk at home, you're not a wise person because your life is compartmentalized, right? When you act one way here and another way there, wisdom encompasses the whole person. And it doesn't mean that you're perfect all the time, but your character should be the same. I remember working for a pastor and being really nervous because I really liked him and he was really good. And I just remember thinking, oh, I'm going to see behind the pulpit. <laughs> like I'm going to see behind the scenes. And what if I don't respect him anymore? What if I think that he's a hypocrite? What if I, but I took the job and I remember telling Dan, I came home one day and I'm like, he's the same. Like I know his, his sin better because I interact with it all the time, but he's, he's fighting it the same way he tells us to fight it. And he's really not marked by like, He's not marked by sins that are controlling his life, but everybody has a bad day, and everybody's sin- and he's repented, and he like he's the same person, and I see him in tons of settings. I see him with important people, and I see him with unimportant people, and I see him with the people he likes, and I see him with the people who I know it's really difficult to counsel, and I see him, and he's the same person. That's a picture of wisdom, right? That you are consistent in your life. It's the whole the conduct is the whole man, the entire way of life, and he's supposed to be gentle. What is interesting about this is this is a gentleness that originates in wisdom. In fact, you could call it wise gentleness if you were translating it. And it's the attitude that you have to have, James says in chapter 1, to receive the implanted word, right? You have to have that meekness and that gentleness to receive God's word. Have you ever thought that a lack of gentleness could impact how you have God's word impact your life? It's not being overly impressed with oneself. I love that definition, not being overly impressed with oneself one's self-importance, and it's to be courteous and considerate of others, right? Gentleness. Well, that's kind of the overview, the umbrella of wisdom, but now James kind of digs in and he gets more specific. So that brings us to our second point, that false wisdom shows itself in disorder. And I kind of added out a thought about slash lie. (laughs) Like, if you have false wisdom, your life is full of every disorder and it's a lie, right? False wisdom shows itself in disorder. The first characteristic of false wisdom, that this lie, that it, we know it's a lie because it has these three characteristics, and the first one is bitter jealousy. Bitter jealousy. That is a pointed, sharp, prickly um, description. It's, it's a word that's pointed, sharp, prickly, pungent, and James uses that word to describe this. It's that which is going to cut, it's going to destroy, and it has no concern for the feelings or welfare of those who are its objects. No concern for them. John MacArthur in his commentary says, those whose lives are based on and motivated by human ungodly wisdom are inevitably self-centered, living in a world in which their own personal ideas, desires, and standards are the measure of everything. Whatever and whoever serves those ends is considered good and friendly, and whatever and whoever threatens those ends is considered bad and the enemy. Those who are engulfed in self-serving worldly wisdom resent anyone or anything that comes between them 
and their own objectives, right? Anything that comes between you, th them and their own objectives. I heard it described as jealousy is wanting what someone else has and not wanting them to have it, right? Sometimes I think we just say it's wanting what someone else has. There can be a positive way of wanting that, right? You can look, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. You can look at someone's godly character and say, I want to live a life like that, right? But it doesn't mean you hate them or you don't want them to have a godly life. It's a model for you to follow, right? Um, I remember when early in our marriage, there was an elder at our church, and he was a CPA, my husband's a CPA, and he was an elder, and Dan loves to teach the word, and he just thought, and he has three kids, we have three kids, I don't know if we had them at this point, but, and his family was in order, it was a very lovely family, and I remember Dan being like, I want to be like Chris. That wasn't bitter jealousy, right? He, it was a godly example that he wanted to follow. But bitter jealousy would be, why am I not an elder, and why am I not in this position of authority, and why is he? You know, he shouldn't be this because of it's a comparison, a competitiveness, and it can show up relational, well, it shows up in all sorts of relationships, but not just, um, you can want it in people's possessions, right? I want to be as successful as they are, I want to have the things that they have, but it can also be their authority. It can show up in, um, even in your attitudes that you want your beliefs or what you think to be respected at a certain level and anything that threatens that you're going to go on the attack against those other people, right? Because you're jealous for your own self-importance and your beliefs, right? Um, jealousy and selfish ambition. And they go together. Selfish ambition is the motive or underlying issue that jealousy is based on. Because you're jealousy is all about promoting you, getting you to what you want, your ends, your objectives, your goal, how you want people to see you, and that is motivated by selfish ambition. And personal gratification, self-fulfillment at any cost. And don't we see that in our nation now? Personal gratification and self-fulfillment at any cost. Think about abortion. You have a right to your own body at the cost of a life. Think about, and even infanticide now, think about credit card debt. You don't have to wait to take that vacation. Charge it. You don't have to save up to afford that furniture or that car. Charge it. Live outside your means. And I'm not, I have credit cards. I'm not saying there's never a time that you use credit cards if you pay them off. I have a home loan. I'm not saying you can't have a, but there's a difference between wise financial decisions and living outside your means. We live in a world where most people, I think it's a staggering 75% or higher, live extremely behind their means and will never be out from credit card debt so that they can fill. So when you're comparing yourself, you're very well, if you do, if you're, I want to be like them, you're very well looking at someone who's charging it. <laughs> Is that how we want to live? Right? It goes on and on. Self-fulfillment at any cost is a selfish ambition that will drive and fuel this jealousy. And where does it reside? It resides in our hearts, right? It is, and it's just like, remember how we, Becky talked about um, in Greek, in the Hebrew, sorry, there's not really a difference between the heart and the tongue. Like, it's so connected. It really is true about all of actions in Hebrew. Like, the heart is the motive of your desires and therefore your actions. So, you're going to be full of these, this, bitter and, uh, this bitterness and jealousy. That's a heart motive. Motivation is always determined in the heart. And that is where both belief and unbelief, sin and righteousness originate. And that was from John MacArthur. So, we have to be guarding our hearts. And these are attitudes that destroy community. You can't have a relationship with someone who is full of bitterness and selfish ambition because eventually, unless you're completely appeasing them and fueling it. If you're an enabler, right, then you can have it. But as soon as 
your agenda doesn't get in their way, doesn't meet their needs, that relationship's gonna fall apart because it's not a real relationship, right? And then, and this, is, this attitude is gonna lead to boasting, right? But do not boast and be false to the truth. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24 says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me. If we claim that we're wise and we live marked by boasting and bitterness and jealousy, we are hypocrites and our life is a lie because wisdom shows itself in obedience, right? Wisdom shows itself in obedience. And so we have to be those who are humble to receive the truth. And again, truth has to be revealed. So the only way we're going to be wise and know the truth is if we know God and his word, right? If you can't separate that. The source of this wisdom, this worldly wisdom is demonic. And I think that was probably the most, because you know, Sin starts small, right? So jealousy, selfishness, it doesn't have to be full raging. It can start small as just a little twinge here and a little that you indulge. But when you think that it's from a demon, isn't that a wake-up call? Even for the small, like all sin is serious, but sometimes scripture just puts it in such a vivid picture to wake us up. Even a small amount, it's demonic. And if you think about it, demons still retain their intelligence and their knowledge. Demons are more intelligent than we are. Demons have been in the presence of God. Demons have lived in, this, in heaven. Like they know, right? They have knowledge, they have intelligence, but they use it to advance themselves and rebel against God and take as many to hell with them as they can. That is the, that is the cause and that is the end of bitterness and jealousy and lies and selfish ambition, right? Yet Satan frequently tempts us with a promise that he offers true wisdom. That's, again, Becky said this about the tongue, right? In the garden, how did Satan tempt? He said, don't believe God's words, believe mine. God says, if you eat of that tree, you'll die. But if you eat of that tree, you'll be wise. You'll have wisdom if you eat from that tree, right? That's how he tempted even the garden, offering a counterfeit wisdom. 2 Corinthians 11, 3 through 4 says, Sorry, and verses 13 and 15. I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguised himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. They're going to disguise themselves, but their deeds will make them known, and that will determine their end. And what is the fruit of this? If you pull all these things together and you're living in that, disorder and every evil thing. <laughs> disorder and every evil thing. And just jot this down if you're taking notes. Turn to 2 Peter 2, 10 through 11 at some point. Read that description of, of, the, of the people. That's a description of disorder and every evil thing. But because we're studying for Samuel with Pastor Brian, Let's just take a minute and think about Saul. Saul was jealous of David, right? David has killed his, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands, right? So that leads Saul to try to kill the promised king, right, David. It leads him to kill all of the priests, except for the one who escaped. Disorder and every evil thing. It leads him basically to turn, remember, these tribes, they're all family, right? So it's turning family against family, right? The tri having the, the tribe of Judah turn against David. And, and what's Saul supposed to be doing? Fighting the Philistines. Saul, is, Saul isn't defending his people from the Philistines. That's why they 
had a king in the first place, right? He's just chasing David all over. So what kind of country do you think you're living in? What kind of turmoil do you think you're living in if during that time all you're doing is sending your sons and daughters, well, not daughters, sons, to war to go chase David? Meanwhile, the Philistines are having a heyday. It leads to a man who's consulting with the witch, not to repent, but for his own selfish needs, who rebukes his son and says, he's going to take the kingdom from you. But Jonathan had already laid the kingdom down, hadn't he? When he took off his armor and gave that to David, that was a symbol of saying, you're the king and I'm following you. Do you see the difference? Do you see selfish and just the jealousy he had made him literally a madman and it destroyed disorder and every evil thing. But our last point is divine wisdom shows itself in peace. Divine wisdom shows itself from peace. It's wisdom, it's from above. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. It's first pure. It's the umbrella that everything else falls under. And remember how we said there's a lot of connections between the Sermon on the Mount and the book of James? Well, we're going to hit quite a few of them right here because it's pure. Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure, the blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's a purity that means there's no um, mix. There's no, so it's the picture of gold, right? You heat up the gold, the dross, the bad metals that are in come to the top and you get rid of them and you have a pure substance. That's what this kind of purity is, that we are people who are of one type, <laughs> of wise, right? Filled with wisdom, filled with the Holy Spirit. So it's pure. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's peaceable. Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The truly wise don't perpetuate, sorry, perpetrate, sorry. The truly wise don't perpetrate conflict by their selfishness, but they produce peace by their humility. That again was from John MacArthur's commentary. The truly wise don't perpetrate conflict by their selfishness, but they produce peace by their humility. It's gentle, that word again. Considerate, forbearing, courteous. Matthew 5, 5 through 10. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In his commentary, William Varner says, Pure is probably given first place because James is intending to teach that someone can be peaceful and gentle, but unless these virtues arise from genuine Christian faith, they prove to be meaningless from the divine perspective. We have to be pure, peaceable, gentle. What else? We have to be open to reason. That means teachable. That means teachable. It's something I pray for my kids every day, that they would learn whatever God has for them to learn the easiest way possible. You know that you can learn something the easy way or the hard way. And we say that in life to our kids, but it's true spiritually too. How you respond to God and what he brings to your life, you can learn the easy way and the hard way. And I pray that they will always have hearts to learn the easiest way possible. And that's a heart that's responsive to God's word and to the Holy Spirit, right? And then it says that they are to be full of mercy and good fruits. That term full of mercy should take us back to the tongue where it says it's full of deadly poison, right? It's the same structure. And so full of mercy is contrasted with a tongue full of deadly poison. A wise person is not full of that kind of evil speech, but it's full of mercy. Mercy will result in good works. That's why we call them mercy ministries, 
right? You've heard of nursing ministries where you're caring for people in nursing homes or for orphans or for widows or for people who have health problems or I was just reading an article about helping vets who have been just um, hurt in war. Mercy ministries show themselves in works. Blessed, again in Matthew, are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And this term good fruits should take us to the fruits of the Spirit because only the Spirit produces this wisdom. This wisdom comes from Him. And so what are the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That is one who is marked by wisdom. They're impartial and sincere. No favoritism, as James has already discussed. No hypocrisy. That is the picture of one who is wise one who speaks, one who is not stirring up and dividing. And what is the result? The seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace. So the deed of peaceful acts will result in justiceness or righteousness. Justiceness or right, justice or righteousness. This does not mean that in being peaceful that we compromise, right? Because who is the picture of wisdom? Who is wisdom? Christ, right? And he never compromised on the truth. He never compromised. He was truth, right? In the beginning, I loved what um, Becky said. There's no distinction between Christ and the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word is God, right? And so this, as you're describing these two ways, the one clarity I wanted to be is if we're living in evil times, and if you say that math is really one plus one equals two and you're called a racist, it doesn't mean you're that disorder is not on you, right? That's on the society. So you are to live at peace with people as far as it is unto you, Paul says in Romans, right? So as we think of this and we come to closing, I want to think about the wisdom embodied in Christ. Paul says that Christ is the power of God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption in 1 Corinthians 1.24. And in Colossians, he says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in Christ is all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And in Romans, Paul says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. True wisdom is dependent. Not that you leave here and say, I'm going to do better, and I'm going to try harder, and I'm going to, but that I know Christ more, and that knowledge transforms you. Because as you know your Savior, and in him are the treasures of wisdom, you will become wise but you can't do that apart from the word. So as I was driving here today, I thought, oh, I know the perfect song to sing as we close. And it's not in our hymnal, and I don't think anybody knows it. But we're going to sing it anyway. And so even if you don't know it really well, please focus on the words. Focus on the words. It's, and we're going to let um, Judy play it through one time before we sing. And I'm going to turn myself off because you don't want me leading this. 